Genesis is the book of beginnings. It tells us about God who created everything and called it good. It teaches us about humanity, how things went wrong in the world, and God's plan to make everything right again. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcc.com. My, uh, my wife is always the first one to hear my sermons um, the night before I always sort of go through it. It gives me a chance to um, just go through it for myself, and then I get some feedback. And every other time I've ever done that, she's just been like, that was incredible, you're the greatest preacher ever, and uh, all these lies. And then last night was the first time she was like, well, what, um, how, why did you say that? And like, how does that? And so I spent, so ever since then, just frantically rewriting. Um, and, uh, and so I want to get into it. I didn't tell her that I was going to do I said I'm going to do something stupid at the beginning, and she was like, that makes me nervous. Um, all that said, uh, let's get into it, because um, we have a lot to say, and there's, there's so much sort of painfully left unsaid. This text that seems on the surface uh, not that interesting became very interesting as I started unpacking. And so um, we're going to continue, as David said, working our way through Genesis, and some of you, if you've been following along, you know why I did the stupid uh, laughter thing, right? We see that um, Isaac is finally born. Isaac's name means laughter. And when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, he fell down laughing. Here, uh, Sarah also laughed. And now she's laughing this laugh of joy that God has been faithful to fulfill his promise to give them a son. They named the son Isaac, Isaac, which means laughter in Hebrew. And... Uh, laughter is this major theme. When God acts in our world, uh, we laugh. And so we're coming to this passage that shows us this theme that we see all throughout the whole Bible, which is God's free choice to choose whoever he pleases. And the theological word for that is election. Uh, <laughs> election. It's a fu- fun, right? How many of you, when you hear the word election, you're just filled up with joy and wonder? Yes, election. How many of you, show of hands, a few of you, how many of you sort of flinch because it feels like a fight is probably coming, right? This is like a theological hot topic. My hope today is that we will see in God's surprising, wonderful, and hilarious purpose. The purpose of election may surprise you. But the truth of election is far better than what we might expect if all we know is theological debate or some, some doctrinal issue. If all you know is sort of these inter-theological uh, debates about superlapsarianism, <laughs> then I hope, I hope this will surprise you today. What we will see today is that God chose Isaac for Ishmael. I wanted to say that in a really simplistic and maybe surprising way, but let's look at the text and we'll, we'll get into it. So if you have a Bible, we're going to go to Genesis 21. I sort of cringe when David's like, just get out your phones and go to this website. All of you have smartphones. That's the world we live in now. So if you don't have a Bible, you can open the Bible app to Genesis 21, or it'll be on the screen. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. 
And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who will have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. Putting it on her shoulder along with the child, he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up! Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." So what we see in this passage, among other things, is God choosing Isaac as the one through whom the promises of God would be fulfilled. God made a promise to Abraham and he's going to keep it through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Isaac is the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Ishmael is not chosen. So what about Ishmael? We can see here and we can see elsewhere that Abraham loves Ishmael. When God told Abraham that, he would have a, that Sarah would have a child, we see that, God, that Abraham sort of tried to reason with God, like, no, we've got Ishmael. May Ishmael live before you. But God says, no, not Ishmael. Sarah will have a child. And here God restates this promise that Ishmael is not the chosen one, but that Sarah will have a son. Isaac is the one that is chosen. But also here, God restates his former promise about Ishmael. He says, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So in this passage, we have this reaffirmation of God's former promises about Ishmael. So Hagar finds herself in this familiar situation. If you think back just a few chapters, it's the same thing. She's fleeing from Abraham's household. She finds herself in this desperate situation in this, in this case, literally despairing for her life. And God sees her and he reminds her of the promise that he's already made to make Ishmael a great nation. In the previous encounter, we see some more detail where the angel of the Lord says that Ishmael would father 12 princes. 
that he would be a great nation. And so as we hear that, we should have all these sort of bells ringing, right? All these connections that Ishmael and Isaac are alike. They're going to father 12 sons, which will be 12 nations. But the text also makes equally clear that they are not the same because God has chosen Isaac and God has not chosen Ishmael. And in this, we see this pattern. We've already seen it in Genesis, and we'll see it throughout the story of the Bible. We'll see it again in, in, in the book of Genesis later on. The prototype of this pattern is Cain and Abel. So God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and he rejects Cain's. And in this, we see several elements that continue that are in, at play here, too. We see first that God chooses the younger brother over the older Second, we see that the older brother, after being rejected, goes off somewhere. Often, he goes off into the east. If you remember, when uh, Adam and Eve leave the garden, this place of exile is the east, right? So this going into the east is sort of symbolically saying further into exile, further cut off from God's presence. Three, we see there's conflict between the chosen son and the rejected son. So these, these brothers that go off often are the ones that are making conflict with the chosen line. And fourth, there's often in these stories the sense that God isn't done with the older brother, that this rejection isn't some final rejection and God wants nothing to do with them. We see it with Cain. God is talking to him. He, God's negotiating. I mean, Cain killed his brother, and so you know, he, there's going to be consequences of that. The exile is pretty natural, right? I mean, family dinner is going to be pretty awkward with Cain sitting there. So he's sent off, but in the middle of that, God offers this mercy to Cain, which is this, this promise of a mark that will be on him, that if anyone kills him, they'll be repaid seven times. Cain is the one who rejects that, distrusts it, goes off and builds a city. We see it here, too, that God isn't, isn't sort of sending Ishmael out and saying, I want nothing to do with you. It actually says God is with Ishmael. God has a promise to make him a great nation. In a few weeks, we'll see this same dynamic play out with Jacob and Esau, and then we'll see it play out with Joseph and his brothers. We'll see it play out at a tribal level, level when God chooses Judah to be the tribe through which the promise will come. All the other tribes actually sort of cut themselves off. From, there's this division between Judah and the other tribes. In Romans 9, Paul examines this theme of election. I want to read this together and be listening as we read for these themes that we see in, in Genesis and references to our passage today. This is Romans 9, verses 6 through 16. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The word of the Lord. 
That's the Calvinist who said that. That, that, was, a, that was a test. <laughs> yes, this passage that, that we love uh, that shows God's, God's choice and election. But if we stop there, we have a flat understanding of election. So I want to skip ahead a little bit to get a fuller picture. Paul has just said all of this, that election is based on God's free choice and his mercy and nothing else. And then as we read on in chapter 10, let's look at verse 13 through 17. Paul writes this. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So in these two passages from Romans, Paul has packed everything that I want to sort of tease out from Genesis 21. That God elects based on nothing but his free choice. And that this election is to a calling, it's to a vocation. The elect have a job to do. And that this job, this calling, is about God's glory being known and proclaimed among the nations. As I was preparing uh, this, this week, I, I really just fell in love with Isaiah 60. As I started seeing in Isaiah 60 the, this uh, sort of a key that connects all these different parts of Scripture, and things came together in a way that was, I hope that you see it, and I hope that you fall in love with it as well. So I want to read some of this. We're going to read a few passages from Isaiah 60, and it may not be immediately clear to us uh, what we're seeing, but what we read in Isaiah 60 is an Abrahamic family reunion. This passage shows us that the rejected sons all throughout Genesis, those who aren't chosen, are now coming to worship Yahweh. Listen for that as we read. This is Isaiah 60. We'll start with the first three verses. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So as I read this, our bell sort of ringing. Does this language sound familiar? Darkness covers the earth, and then behold, light shines. Do you see that? Some bells ringing. This is creation language. Isaiah is describing here a new kind of creation, and it has resonance with John as well, which we'll see in a moment, John 1.1. Let's continue reading. He says, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. And they shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. 
Isaiah is picking up this theme that we see. It's common throughout his works, and it's a city set on a hill where the light is shining and the nations are coming from afar. The nations are gathering. We see in Isaiah 2, they're coming to learn the ways of Yahweh. We don't have time to get into all of these connections, but if you want to make a note, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 25 show this theme of the mountain where, people, where the nations are gathered. What we have here is a bright light shining from a city that is set on a high place. And the nations are coming from afar with camels loaded up with all kinds of gifts. And they're bringing their treasures into the city. And there's a detail here that's lost on us modern readers because we don't, sort of under, we don't have these names in our sort of common language. So these nations that are coming to the city are Abraham's children. They are the ones who've been not chosen all throughout Genesis. The not chosen children of Abraham are coming to worship Yahweh. So coming into the city are young camels from Midian and Ephah. So Midian, if you do a quick search, have I, where does that come from? Midian is Abraham's son from his wife Keturah, who he married after Sarah died. Ephah is Midian's son, so this is Abraham's grandson. Sheba, as we read in this text, is another of Abraham's grandsons, born from Jokshan. Jokshan was one of Abraham's sons from Keturah. And we also read about these flocks of Kedar and rams of Neboeth. If we remember that God promised to make 12 princes from, from Ishmael, Neboeth was the firstborn son of Ishmael, and Kedar was the secondborn son of Ishmael. So two of these princes that are promised Ishmael are now coming and worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can read about these non-chosen sons in Genesis 25. It tells us there that Keturah had six sons, and then it lists several of the grandsons born through that line. Genesis 25 also tells us this. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So we see this same pattern. Just as he did with Ishmael, he did with the sons born to Keturah. He sends them out to the east with, with some gifts. So what we see in Isaiah 60 is the not chosen sons of Abraham the not-chosen children coming in to worship Yahweh. It's a big family reunion. It's a wonderful image, right? But when did this happen? I mean, if we look around right now, we know it ain't happened yet, right? It becomes really clear if we continue reading in Isaiah 60 that this is describing, this kind of, it's kind of an apocalyptic event, if we can use that term meaning the end of the age. It's something that we are still longing for and hoping for. Now, picking up this theme from Isaiah 2, Isaiah writes this, Violence shall be no more. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. So this picture of a nation gathered together at the mountain of God, learning his ways and turning away from war and toward cultivation. We see that in Isaiah 2. As we read on, we read more sort of end times language. It has all kinds of resonances with John's revelation, which we'll see in a moment. He says, the sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, 
and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended." Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. So you should be thinking, ah, a city whose light is the Lord. So it's really clear here. We're talking about New Jerusalem. So let's look at it, this parallel passage in the book of Revelation. So I want to read this. Again, this is John's revelation. As we read this, listen for the light of the city, the nation of Israel, and the nations. Listen for those things as we read. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. He goes on, if we skip a little bit, he goes on describing the city, and then we read, And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. I mean, I feel like I don't, you, you can see the word for word. John's vision and Isaiah's vision are the same thing. A city on a hill with the Lord shining as the light of the city, to which the nations flood, bringing treasures from all the nations in to, to worship and glorify Yahweh. Now, this is the the thing that Isaiah didn't know that John knows, and that is that Jesus of Nazareth is the one one who is the lamb shining in the city. Amen? Jesus is the one that Isaiah just knew to call the suffering servant. But John tells us it's this Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried, buried is the light to which all the nations come. He is the one shining like the sun. John 1, 4 and 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We also see at the birth of Christ, the Magi from the east, right, come. They see an astrological sign that tells them that this this prophesied king has been born, and they bring him frankincense and gold and myrrh. But if we remember, frankincense and gold are two of the treasures mentioned in Isaiah 60. But we know that this isn't a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. It's, it's like a hint. It tells us this partial um, sort of glimpse into the fulfillment of this prophecy tells us that Jesus is this Messiah King. He is the one who will attract all nations to himself. But we know that we aren't quite there yet because we know that nations are still training for war against other nations. Cultures are still being built to glorify us, to make a name for us and not to bring to glorify God. So then if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is this city shining on a hill, and he has come, then what gives? Like, where are we now? Where are the nations? Where are Ishmael's descendants? And so like good stories, there's a twist, something no one expected, a surprise that no one saw coming. And it's this. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, this is Matthew 5, 14 through 16, 
you are the light of the world. That's the, that's the thing no one saw coming, right? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the Magi just sort of open up this door. They show us what kind of king Jesus is, that he is one of all nations. But everyone thought that Jesus was going to come establish the throne of David, drive out Rome, and there would be new Jerusalem then and there. But instead... He turned it back to his disciples and he gave them a job to do. You are a city on a hill. Let your light shine before men. Let it shine so bright that the nations will be attracted to come into the city of God, to glorify God. And in another twist that no one saw coming, Jesus just goes away, ascends into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. You could imagine these astounded disciples standing there like, oh, you were supposed to... You're supposed to do all this stuff. And he's saying, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you a helper, and I've given you a job to do, to be my body in the world. So the first thing we see in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and the first thing that the, act, that the, the, first thing that the Holy Spirit does is starts to attract the nations. We read this in Acts 2. Folks from all around are drawn They're all there for Pentecost, but when they hear this sort of ruckus emerge as the disciples start speaking in tongues, they're they're attracted. We read this. They were amazed. This is the people from all different nations. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the first thing the Spirit does is he starts speaking through the disciples is brings in the nations in this reversal of the Tower of Babel. As we continue in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit is not just uniting Jews and converted Jews from all nations, but that there's this great mystery that Cameron was talking about earlier. The gospel of Jesus is going to the nations, like the Gentile nations, those who were cut off from the family of God. And this is the situation we find ourselves in today. The gospel is going out to all nations, but we are still longing for and anticipating the full fulfillment of Isaiah's vision and John's vision of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to the city where the Lamb shines. So let's talk about us. Election is a little different now. We aren't elected to continue the line of promise like, Isaiah, like Isaac was, like Abraham was. We here today, who are elect, those of us who are in Christ, we are chosen by God's grace. As I was thinking about this this week, this stuck out to me. It really hit me in a way I'd never really thought of before. So most of us today uh, who are here are Gentiles. That means that we were not Jews. But what sort of hit me in a way that it never had is that means that if we could trace our lineage back to at least Noah, At some point, our lineage would have been one of these spun-off, rejected brothers that maybe we could trace back to 
to, the, to um, Esau. Maybe we're Edomites. Or the incest that we saw last week that led to the Moabites. Or maybe we're Ishmaelites. But if we aren't Jewish, we aren't from a chosen line. We were at one point cut off. And even Sarah Branscombe and others who may be Jewish may not be from the line of Judah. And as I hinted at earlier, if you're not from the line of Judah, you were also cut off from this line of promise. There was this division even among the the children of Israel. I don't know, but at some point we were cut off as Gentiles. So we are the ones who've been grafted in by grace. We come from these rejected brothers. I don't know why this hit me so hard, but Gentile isn't just the default setting of people and then God chose Israel. But Gentiles are the nations that are spinning off when God is choosing and rejecting. And that's us. Still, today, we who have believed that God kept His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when He sent Jesus, and we who've trusted our lives to Jesus, the Bible calls the elect. This is the great mystery that Paul is talking about all throughout his letters, that the nations, the Gentiles, are now a part of the elect. It's not just an Israel thing anymore. And Jesus, as the true Israel, becomes the elect one. Election sort of whittles down to one. God's purpose in electing Isaac is to elect Christ. It's his purpose in choosing Jacob and Judah and Rahab and Ruth and David And as the family of Abraham grows, God is continuing to elect a narrow and narrower set of people until we come to this elect young woman talking to an angel about a baby that she's going to conceive and deliver. Now we, as the church, are the elect chosen by God's grace to be joined together as the church by the power of the Holy Spirit with Christ, that elect one, as our head. We come into, in a sense, we come into his election He is our head, we are the body, and therefore we are, it's like we participate in his election. This is this sort of twist, it plays with your mind a little bit, but in Christ we are now both the light on the hill, as Christ is our head, we are his body shining. This is this mystery into which the angels long to look. Paul has this mysterious phrase. What God is doing in the church is a mystery even to the angels. And, so we are the light, and we are the gathering nations coming into the city of God. And so this is the wonderful and hilarious truth about election. God knew you, God loved you, and God chose you in Christ before He said, let there be light. Brother and sister in Christ, God knew you, and He loved you, and He chose you in Christ before He said, let there be light. Amen? Amen? No? Should we take a, take a moment to laugh some more? <laughs> just kidding. Yet in order to choose the nations, he first had to choose just one. One family, Abraham, his line, which eventually became one man, Jesus Christ. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made alive with Christ. We are grafted into this ancient tree, Israel. And as the elect, as the body of Christ, we shine like stars in this present age, and the nations will come bringing their treasures to glorify God. So to maybe try to say this same thing more simply, 
God's electing choice that we see in the Old Testament narrows down, narrows and narrows and narrows until there's one, Jesus. Then in Jesus, we, the nations, are brought into election by the Holy Spirit who gives us the grace to live with Christ. And that is good news. If that was it, if we stopped there, that's good news. But it's better than that. I feel like an infomercial. If that isn't enough, we'll throw in a second one for the same price. It gets better. So why did God choose Isaac? Probably he chose Isaac because he was really good, right? Probably because he was like the best guy around. The, the chapter that we skipped, by the way, go back and read it. Uh, Genesis 20. Abraham is doing the same thing he did to the Egyptians. He's made this deal with Sarah. Everywhere we go, just tell him you're my sister. Abimelech takes her in just like, just like the Pharaoh did. I mean, so Abraham isn't chosen because he's such a great guy. Jacob, from the very beginning, is a deceiver and a liar. God did not choose them because of their goodness. He chose them because he chose them, because God can do what he wants, and he wanted to choose them. All throughout Scripture, we see that God chooses the weak, the foolish, the nearly dead. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael because Ishmael makes sense. Ishmael was achieved by human effort. That's not the way of Yahweh. That's boring stuff. That doesn't make you laugh, right? God is always shaking things up. He keeps it fresh. He's talking out of a burning bush. He's feeding his nation with food from the sky. There's water pouring out of rocks. Isaac is hilarious. I mean, it's maybe not a funny joke right now, but Isaac is hilarious. There's no way if Abraham came to Sarah and said, here's my plan. I've got a plan. This is brilliant. It's going to work. I know all throughout your life you haven't been able to have children, but here's my plan, and it's brilliant. When you're 90, we're going to put on a Marvin Gaye record, maybe some John Legend. We're going to get fresh. You're going to have a son. And at 90, you're not going to die in childbirth. And that son will become a great nation through which the whole world will be blessed. You would lock that guy up. It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. And we see this when Sarah's celebrating the birth of Isaac. She says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You can hear the joy in what she's saying. She said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? She's saying it here. This is so insane. All we can do is laugh about it. No one would have come up with his plan, but God did because that's how God works. He chooses David, and David's dad didn't even think to bring him in for the lineup. And they have to stand there kind of awkwardly. He won't even let them sit down while they go fetch David. He chooses Moses when he's a baby boy left in a basket in a river, when all the baby boys are being thrown in the river by, by the Egyptians to drown. He chooses Moses, the guy who the Bible says is slow of speech and tongue, to be his mouthpiece before Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. And that's just a couple, but the story is repeated again and again in the Bible. So today, brother and sister, if you are strong and powerful and elegant and well-dressed and talented and you've got a lot to offer God, he ain't picking you for, your, for his team. That's not how the, the God of the Bible works. We see it again and again. One of my favorite examples is Ruth, a Moabite woman who followed her mother-in-law back to, to, the land, to, the, to Canaan in this desperate act. 
the chances are that they are going to starve or they are going to be killed. They are in complete desperation. They have zero to offer anyone. And this is one, the one who God says, that's the one who I want to be the, grandfather, the grandmother of David to carry forward this line of promise. Gideon's army is another just hilarious example. Gideon has this army, and God's like, he got too many people, Gideon. You can imagine Gideon being like, are you sure? Like, shouldn't we just take them anyway? Like, just in case? Think about Jericho. It's not funny if the strongest men of Israel go out and defeat Jericho. They overpower them. You don't laugh at that, right? That's just like, yeah, they won. They were stronger. But picture in your mind the priests leading the way. They're just walking around the city. And then on the seventh day, they all start shouting and blowing trumpets. It's absurd. Can you imagine the laughter in their camp that night? Like, what in the world did God just do? I don't know. Am I alone? Is this funny stuff? When God does stuff that makes no sense, all we can do is laugh and wonder at God's glory that is revealed in these things. That's what Yahweh is like. He chooses Isaac because, because there's no way any human could say, that was my plan. And it's hilarious. They just laugh. Paul is super clear that this is how God still does things. In this kind of awkward moment in, in Corinthians, and I think it's funny, he, he tells them to look around. Why, why don't we do it now? Look around and see how foolish God is. <laughs> All these foolish people God is choosing. It is kind of this like weird under, uh, undercut. It's like, an, it's like a little insult, right? He says, For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord so Paul is saying to the Corinthian church look around you and see who God chooses does he choose the powerful the wise the strong everybody look around you know flex so here's where here's what this means for us here's the upshot for us as the elect and if you are in Christ, we can take comfort in that. God chose us before the foundations of the world. We have work to do. Amen? And this will be different for each of us as we try to apply scriptures to our own lives. But what I want to see as we close is that this work for us means that we are going to set ourselves up on a hill and we are going to shine. So I want to just end with a few quick questions. How do we shine? Where do we shine? And why do we shine? So how do we shine? I could sum this up really by saying that we shine by knowing, loving, and obeying Jesus. But to shine, we have to stand out against a dark backdrop. Wendell Berry has this line in one of his, his poems that says, I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. So go outside after, you, after this gathering and look up. There are stars there. Now I know that you all know that, but isn't it kind of weird to think about? We can't see them because they're too much like the light that comes from the sun. There's no contrast. 
The point is that we live in a dark age. And if we are too much like the darkness around us, then we don't shine. We will be dull lights. We will not attract the nations. Now, we've already said this, but Abraham and Isaac don't deserve to be elected because they're better than the others. Today, it's a little different. As Christians, we are called to have distinct lifestyles, to be set apart, to be, to be, to be distinct from the world. We are called to, be, to pursue holiness, but we also know that we will fail. We will make mistakes. We aren't perfect. And a part of the way that we shine is that we confess sin. We admit our faults without being so concerned with saving face. And man, does that stand out today in our world where it's all about face. It's all about seeming to be better than you are. So we shine by being distinct from the world, by living a distinct lifestyle. And there are a lot of ways we can do that as we apply that where we are. Second question is, where do we shine? So, we, set up, we shine to be set apart from the world, but we shine also by setting ourselves up on a hill. So, Jesus says that if we are shining, but we put ourselves under a bowl, then we aren't going to attract the nations. People won't see our good deeds or glorify our God in heaven. And so, we shine by, uh, we shine in the places where we can be seen. So, there are all kinds of implications for this. It means that we aren't called to shine off on some island somewhere. We aren't, we aren't supposed to sequester ourselves to some holy Christian sub, you know, we go start a commune where we all live really holy lives. And if the nations could only see, they would glorify God. And I confess that's attractive to me. <laughs> God hasn't called me to live in a cabin in the woods yet. One of the implications of this isn't necessarily that you like be loud for Jesus. I remember growing up, that's why I always thought like, man, Christianity is really easy for extroverts <laughs> who get to just go be cheerleaders for Jesus. Get on Facebook and tell everybody to repent and worship Jesus. If God calls you to that, fine. But it, it means that where we live and work and worship, we are looking for ways to shine our lights, lights by living this distinct lifestyle. It means that, that in our normal daily lives, we're speaking in weird ways because the Bible is influencing the way we speak and think. It means that we're quick to admit our faults and ask for forgiveness. It means that the, the things you spend your time doing, your money buying, and your energy delighting in are weird to your neighbors. And it means that as you, where you live and where you work and where you worship, you're thinking and scheming like a missionary who's gone into some foreign country looking for people who are open to the gospel, looking for people who you can invite into your life to come alongside you where they can see how you live and see how distinct your life is from theirs, to see the things that you put hope in are different from the things that they put hope in. Finally, the question, why do we shine? So there, there are all kinds of things that we can reject here, all kinds of things that we reasons we don't shine. So we don't shine for our own glory. Again, you can go back to Isaiah 2. They're building things and they're making a name for themselves. This is rejecting God's purpose for us. We don't shine for our own glory. We don't shine to feel good about ourselves. We don't shine so we can be living our best life or some sort of self-help gospel. We are on mission with God. The mission is to bring the full measure of the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation into His holy city. We are to be like a beacon. Those who the Spirit is drawing will see the light and they will come. It's a privilege and it's a vocation. 
So we aren't elected so that we can hang on tight and hope we don't break anything until, uh, until we die or before we die. I know for me, that was my, you know, my upbringing was, you're saved, now just hang on. Don't screw that up. You're probably going to screw it up. Try really hard not to screw up your salvation. We aren't elected to hang on tight and hope. We have work to do. And that work is for the lost sheep of Ishmael and all those other rejected brothers. So I want to restate what we've seen today. I want to say it in a series of uh, uh, statements. These are things that are true. One, God elects. Our God is an electing God. Amen? God elects the weak. Amen? Like, that one hurts a little, but yeah. God elects the weak to a purpose. Amen? God elects the weak to a purpose of gathering all nations to his holy city to worship him. Amen. And at least one appropriate response to all of this is to laugh. Because it's what God is doing. We have very little to do with it. And to invite others to laugh with us as God does in us what we are completely powerless to do in ourselves. So brothers and sisters, I want to just encourage you with one final thought, and and that is that today, if we look around in this room, take a picture, it's a snapshot of what we see in Isaiah Isaiah 60. It's a snapshot of what we see in in the book of Revelation Maybe a few of us here would be from Israel, from from this line of Isaac, but most of us are from Esau, Ham, Ishmael, Jokshim. We are from these rejected brothers. And as we come into this place today to worship, this is a little slice, just just a snippet of the kingdom of God. So what we don't have here today is every tribe, tongue, and nation, but we have lots. If we traced back, we'd see that we have lots of tribes and tongues and nations. We are united by Christ who is our head in the body and the Holy Spirit who is equipping us with the fruits and the gifts that we need to go and to shine the light of the gospel among the nations. That's that's good news. Even as we gather here today, it is a slice, right? We see a sliver of what God is doing among us. It is good news, and I hope that we can laugh about it because it isn't our doing. It is what God is doing in us. Will you pray with me? Eternal Father of mercy, you are completely just to elect whoever you want. Any election at all is your mercy, God. We are all deserving to be cut off from your kingdom. But we see that in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, God, we can read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. We see that throughout the whole thing, you had a purpose, and it was leading to Jesus Christ. We see so many times that the seed of promise was nearly snuffed out. We see many times that, that there, was, there seemed to be no hope, but you had a purpose in all of it to show that it isn't our doing. It isn't because of anyone's strength. It isn't because of anyone's talent that Jesus Christ came because of your will and mercy alone, Jesus Christ came. And I I ask now that as as we continue in worship and all that we do, God, we could just be impressed that you did that, 
that we could be impressed that in Christ we are lifted up. We are lifted up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. That we come into that election by grace because you elected Christ and he, he sends out the disciples. God, we could, we could trace all of our salvations back to those disciples. You sent out with the power of the Holy Spirit to pro- proclaim your gospel and may we take that forward, God. Help us to repent of living lives that are too much like the world or help us to repent of being sort of off some holy commune somewhere where we can't be seen by the world. May we, like those disciples who were sent out, may we go taking the good news of the gospel and the light of Christ that God chooses the weak and the foolish things, that there, there is no favoritism with God based on like wealth or beauty or talent. He is choosing those things which are not to teach those that are. It's an incredible mystery. I ask that we would be just impressed by it today that it would spur us to action, that our calling in Christ, our election would not give us an excuse to be lazy, would not give us some sense that we just need to hang on until kingdom comes, but God, we would go forward taking the mission of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to see all nations coming into the holy city where they bring their their gifts to worship you. And God, I pray finally that you would just impress us that we are the cast-off brother, most of us. If it were not for mercy, we would still be wandering in the east fighting against the nation of Israel. But you have brought us home that this family reunion is is our destiny. (laughs) This family reunion that we read about in the Bible, we will be at the feast of Isaiah 25. You will prepare the feast for us. We will taste the rich food and drink the good wine. That is, that is good news for all of us, Lord, who are in you. And I pray that anyone who is not in you will just see that light and be drawn to the light. I pray for the lost today who you know you have marked them for election, but they have no idea. They are in darkness. They are dead in their trespasses. Draw them to the light that they see in your people, that there is unity and love, that there is abundant life, that they would be attracted to it, God like a city on a hill. I thank you that you, you are doing all these things in and among your people, that we are privileged to participate with you in them. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information, visit ctkcincy.com.